0: Well, it's so good to see all of you today. If you're a guest, I just want to let you know that I am not the senior pastor here. I'm just one of the pastors here. The senior pastor is off here, uh, over here to my right. His name uh, is David Burroughs, and uh, I think he just got tired of preaching. He's like, I was the closest guy next to him when he got tired. He's like, you do it for a while. And so uh, I started a sermon series uh, last week called The Absurdity of Christ. If you weren't here, that sounds like a pretty absurd title uh, for a sermon series. Let me kind of tell you how I got there. Uh, just, it's really just through reading through the Gospels uh, and kind of taking notes as I went. I just realized that I would read something about Jesus that he said or that he did, and I would just like make a note. And I was like, this, that's absurd that someone would say something like this. And it's really absurd just from a human perspective. Obviously, we can't just think of Jesus from a human perspective, but I mean, he was around a whole bunch of humans, so I always put myself uh, in that scenario whatever it is, with Jesus and realize, man, he was saying some, some really absurd things. And, and just after time, I had several of those notes, and I, I just kind of came to this title, like, the absurdity of Christ would be something that I would love to teach someday, and so you get to uh, benefit or not from that. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. What I really want you to see through this whole series, all right, these four weeks that I'll be uh, preaching, is that following Jesus may seem absurd, but it never is. And it's never absurd to follow Jesus because of who he is, all right? Now, humanly speaking, people might think or say to you that you following Jesus is absurd, or maybe you've thought that a time or two in your life, maybe when you're struggling with faith, but it's never absurd because of who Jesus is. This Uh, kind of this whole idea of the absurdity of of Jesus and uh, really started with his father, God the Father, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, if I take you back like 3,000, 3,500 years ago, uh, we see that God started to talk to his people and he would say some really absurd things, and he would do some really absurd things. I mean, take 17-year-old Joseph, for example. Joseph was given two dreams by God, all right? And so he goes and he tells his family, here's the dreams that God gave me. God tells me that you, my mom, you, my dad, and you, all my brothers, are going to bow to me someday. And they thought, that's absurd, buddy. And uh, the brothers thought it was so absurd that they threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. Uh, That was also absurd. But it was probably there in slavery where Joseph was thinking, I wonder if, if those dreams that God gave me really weren't from God or why they were so absurd because nothing has happened. It wasn't until Joseph was 39 years old when his family is starving and they come to Egypt and he's head over all of Egypt by this time. And his brothers and his father come and they bow down before Joseph. Take Moses, for instance. I mean, Moses' story, totally absurd, humanly speaking. When... Uh, When God comes to Moses, Moses is just kind of minding his own business, tending sheep. He just sees a bush on fire. He's like, well, I guess I'll go put that out because what else do you do with bushes that are on fire? As he gets closer, he sees that this bush is not burning up. It's just burning. And so he's like, okay, this is weird. He keeps getting closer. And then God absurdly speaks to him through the burning bush. Now that is absolutely (coughs) absurd. If you would have been there... And you're like walking by and you kind of come into the middle of the scene you're like what hold on what did I just see there is that is that a guy talking to a burning bush and then the burning bush I mean they're having like an intense conversation the burning bush is talking this is absolutely absurd and God, through the burning bush, tells Moses, I want you to set my people free in Egypt. And you would have been looking and you wouldn't have known that it was God talking. And you're like, is there a lot of bushes held captive in Egypt? (laughs) Like, what is going on here? It's 100% absurd. Let's keep going with the story of Moses because God does some more absurd things. After he uses Moses to free those Israelites, he brings them to a dead end at the Red Sea. And he tells Moses, all right, Moses, here's what you're going to do. It's going to sound absurd. No, he didn't say that. Here's what you're going to do, Moses. Take your staff. And Moses is like, yeah, I got my staff. You've seen all the pictures. I always have my staff, right? And he's like, okay, now that you have your staff, raise your staff up. Oh, okay. Raising, raising my staff, raise my staff. All right. Now stretch your arm out over the seas. Okay. Okay. Right then, that absurd thing that you think that Moses was doing, God opens up the Red Sea. His people cross over on dry land. Let's keep going with Moses because the story keeps getting more absurd the more you get into it. There's one point where the Israelites, they're stuck in the desert. They wish they had died in Egypt because there's no food there. And Moses goes to God and he's like, there's no food here. And God says, don't worry, Moses. I have something really absurd to tell you right now. I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. That's word for word. I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. Sounds absurd, except that God did it. You keep going, Moses. I want you to do something else. All these people are about to die of their thirst. You need to do something else. All right, uh, I'm ready. What absurd thing do you have for me to do now? All right, so I want you to take your staff again. Yep, got my staff. All right, and I want you to hit rocks. And he's like, Every day, I'm hitting rocks with my staff as I walk. Nothing happens, God. This is absurd. He says, but this time when you do it, that rock is going to break open and it's going to pour forth with water and it's going to feed all of my people. It's going to quench their thirst with this water. And so Moses does it and it happens. It's absurd. So when Jesus comes onto the scene... God's only begotten son, it's no surprise that he picks up right where God left off. I mean, look at the feeding of the 5,000 people. That Jesus did. It was probably more like 15,000 people, maybe even more when you count women and children. So it was a lot of people that were fed. But here's here's the scene. All of these people are following Jesus wherever Jesus goes. And Jesus starts heading out into the desert. It's actually supposed to remind you of the earlier feeding when the bread fell from heaven. Uh, We won't get into all that. but uh, So they're following Jesus. He goes into the desert. They're far from the towns. They're far from everything. And it's getting late. And the disciples are like, Jesus, look, it's getting kind of late. There's a lot of people, like 15,000 people here that have just been following you. They haven't eaten. They're tired. They need to sit. I mean, it's just a horrible thing. Why don't you just send them home? And Jesus says this absurd thing, and I quote, he says, they don't need to go home. You give them something to eat. Um Well, I mean, we brought like enough for 10 disciples, like two we're not going to eat because we don't have enough food. I don't know what you want us to do. We don't have food to feed 15,000 people. I mean, that would have taken chariots and carts and baskets and everything else. God, we we don't have that. And then Jesus does this amazing miracle. What about when Jesus healed the paralytic man? There's a paralytic man, and he was hanging out, basically living at this place where these waters, this pool of water would stir up, and the people thought, if you can get in, it will heal you. This guy tried to get into that pool of water and tried to be healed so many times, could never make it. He would get trampled, and he just couldn't make it in. And so he just basically lives at this place for years. And then Jesus comes to him one day, to a paralytic man. And this is what he says. Do you want to be healed? Well, yes, that's an absurd question. I'm paralyzed. I've been living here trying to be healed for years. Yes, I want to be healed. And then Jesus heals him. So his absurd question wasn't so absurd at all. What about the next time a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus? This time he's carried by his friends, he's like on this cot, and the people can't even get to Jesus. He's teaching, and they decide, all right, we'll get him through the roof." So they lower their friend down through the roof, and everybody knows what Jesus is going to do. He's going to heal the paralyzed man. And so he's right there, and right as you think he's going to do it, he says, your son, your sins, your sins are forgiven, paralyzed man. Uh, that's kind of uh, I, I have a question, Jesus. Um, why, why didn't you heal him? He didn't come here for his sins to be forgiven. His friends brought him here so that you would heal him. And then Jesus heals him. So you see this absurdity of Jesus, this absurdity of Christ, and all of the things that he said and he did. And that brings us to what we looked at last week. We looked at the absurd call of Matthew. It was absurd for God to call someone like Matthew. Matthew. He was a tax collector. No one else would have called him to be a follower. No one would have done it. He was a loser. And I know some of you were like, oh man, losers are going to be in heaven. And others of you were like, yes. Losers are getting in. That means Joe is getting in with me. All right. Uh, So that's all of a whole bunch of things that were absurd that Jesus did. And that really brings us to today's message, the absurd call not to follow. All right. Usually when we talk about Jesus and we talk about him and what he said to people He always said, follow me. I mean, that's what he said last week when we looked at the call of Matthew, follow me. We're not gonna be in that passage this week. We're gonna be in a totally different passage, a passage that Jesus, in essence, is saying, don't follow me. What I want you to get out of this message is this, that following Jesus is going to cost you. If you see one thing from today's message, it's that. Following Jesus is going to cost you. If you can't handle that cost, then maybe you shouldn't be following Jesus. So we're gonna get into Luke 14, 25 through 33, but I wanna give you a little context before we get there. Jesus is really at the end of his ministry, kind of the beginning of the end of his ministry. He is, in every sense of the word, a celebrity everyone knows who Jesus is. You couldn't find someone that didn't know who Jesus is by this point because as he's walking from town to town, crowds are following him. Big crowds, crowds like 15, 20,000 people are following Jesus everywhere that he goes. They've heard about his teachings. They've heard about his miracles. Everybody just wants to see what it is that Jesus is going to do next. They probably also think he's done some absurd things. I can't wait to see the next absurd thing that Jesus does. And so that's kind of the context as we get into Luke uh, 14, 25 through 33. The one thing that you need to know as we get into this passage is if you're going to follow along in your Bible, I have rearranged the verses so that I can preach this just a little differently. So as you, if you just go verse by verse, you're going to get lost. Just stay with me on the screen. I have the verses uh, numbered up there so you can see them. We're going to go to verse 25 right now. It says, now, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds. Now, did you see it doesn't say just a big crowd? It says crowds. That is to clue you in on the fact that this isn't just like a small group of people like that are here in this room right now. This is thousands upon thousands of people. I wouldn't wouldn't put out of my mind 20,000 people. I mean, The things that Jesus was doing, no one had ever seen. The things that he was teaching, no one had ever heard. They were huge crowds that were accompanying him. And so he's going along, they're following him and he stops and he turns to them and he's gonna say a few things to them. Now, I want to talk to you just a little more about that crowd. That crowd could have been, uh, and, and it was, it was made up of really just like any other crowd. Yesterday, we had a crowd here of about 5,000, I hear, for the, the bash. Uh, in that crowd, you would have had people that were Jesus' followers who placed their faith in him. You would have had skeptics in that crowd. You would have had people that, like, drug their friend to that event. Same thing, like, in Jesus' time. You, hey, man, I, I'm going to see Jesus. You're coming with me. What else are we going to do? Uh, Uh, You're going to have some people bored, all right, that were there. They're like, I don't know. I guess there's a big crowd coming through. I guess I'll go see Jesus. You'd have people there who were trying to trap Jesus. You'd have his enemies in that crowd. You would have people that genuinely had curiosity in that crowd. I mean, it's just like any crowd that comes here on a Sunday morning. It's made up of all kinds of different people. And not every one of them is a follower of Jesus. And Jesus knows that. He knows that the spiritual condition of the people is what matters most. And so as he turns to them, that's really what he's thinking about. And that's really where this whole passage comes from. There's another place where Jesus turns around and he talks to the crowd. And uh, we, we learned that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd and they were harassed and helpless. So we can assume that Jesus has the same feelings when he turns around and he sees this crowd of thousands upon thousands of people following him. And he really knows that every single person in that crowd, though they're following him on foot, may not be a follower of his, may not be a disciple of his. And obviously he wants them to be But he knows the truth that there's a difference between following Jesus and going where Jesus' followers go. Jesus knew that. He knew that everyone in there wouldn't end up following him. So he's going to turn around to this crowd that's full of Jesus' followers for sure, but full of a lot of other people as well. And just because you're with Jesus' followers doesn't make you a Jesus' follower. So he turns to this crowd as he's walking along. And what he tells them, we can really kind of put in two categories, all right? He's going to tell them two different things. He's going to tell them what they need to do before they begin following him. And then he's going to tell them what it's going to take to follow him, all right? He's going to tell them, listen, here's what you need to do before. If you're thinking about following me, do this before that. Okay, before you follow me, you gotta do something. And after that, he's going to tell them exactly what it's going to take to follow him. So we'll look first at what the crowd needs to do, that first category. What does the crowd need to know? If they're going to follow Jesus, what do they need to do? Remember that they're an oral culture. And so they would, uh, they would speak stories that would have the teaching in them. We're like all PowerPoint, all right? We're like, hey, I want you to know this point. We put it up there and that's it. We don't tell a story to get the point across. Jesus was living in an oral culture and they always told stories to get the point across. Jesus is about to tell two stories with the exact same teaching, In them. So let's go to the first story. This is verse 28. This is what Jesus says For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down? and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Now, build a tower, you're obviously thinking, well, that's a weird uh, thing to do. But uh, way back then, they had vineyards, and those vineyards had to be watched. They needed a lookout tower to see anything that was going on in the vineyard. And that's basically what Jesus is talking about here. But if you're gonna go build a tower, he says to the crowd, you gotta first sit down and figure out how much it's gonna cost. Count the cost means to come to an understanding by figuring something out. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to start building a tower, you need to know how much the labor is going to cost, how much materials are, where you're going to put it, what you're going to need to do. You're going to have to count all the things that this tower you want to build is going to cost you. He says, otherwise, you might not have enough money to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, which means carry out to the very end, all right? Finish is is like carrying something out to the very end. If you want a great example of not finishing, you can go and look at the El Paso construction projects on the road, okay? They do not know how to carry out a construction project. It will never end, I swear. I promise you, I've been going to El Paso since I was a kid here, since I was seven years old. We've been making trips to El Paso, always construction on I-10 the entire way. I don't know what's going on, but that's just how it is. Or you could look at the New Mexico State basketball team last year for a bad example of carrying something all the way through. I had to say it, it was right there for me. You have to carry something out to the very end. And if, if you don't, all who see it are going to mock you saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Let's go to the second story. This is verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate. That means to, to figure out, to think deeply upon whether he's able with 10,000 men who comes against him with 20,000. So there's another king that he's gonna to go to war with. He has 20,000, you have 10,000, Jesus tells the crowd. If, if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What king would go to war without first sitting? And counting the cost, how many men is this going to cost me? How many chariots is this going to cost me? Can I beat the other king that's coming against me with 20,000 men? That king needs to sit down and figure all of that out before he goes to war. So here's the teaching. It's the same teaching in both of the stories, all right? It's really easy to see. Both of those things are huge commitments. Building a tower, that's a huge commitment, and it's a costly commitment, okay? It's going to cost you if you're gonna build a tower. Same thing with a king who wants to go to war. If a king wants to go to war, it's going to cost them, and war is a big commitment. And then the one teaching that ties both of the stories together perfectly is this. Jesus says, in each of those stories, those men need to sit down and they need to count the cost. Do you know what he's saying as he turns around to the crowds of people following him? Following me is a big commitment, and it's a costly commitment. So before you follow me and you're not able to finish, sit down. And you count the cost to decide whether it's worth it for you to follow me. Jesus, in essence, is saying, don't follow me if you can't handle the cost. The second thing that I want us to look at is what it's going to take to follow Jesus. That's the second category of things that we're going to look at. Now, this is really the meat of this passage. Everything is coming down to this, and everything is coming down to loyalties. Jesus is going to start talking about the loyalty of each and every single person that he's talking to in that large, large crowd. So the very first thing that he says is, your loyalties have to change from your family to me If you're going to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, your loyalty has to change from your family to me. That's a big one. Wait till you hear how absurd this scripture is. Let's go to verse 26 now. If anyone comes to me, that word comes to me isn't just like comes over to me. It means comes to me to become my disciple. Okay. If anyone comes to me with that purpose, Listen to this, and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even himself. Can't be my disciple. Jesus is going to say that last phrase two more times in the next two verses that we look at. You can't be my disciple. So, what he's saying, if you're not hearing this, and probably the whole crowd was like, I thought he talked more about love instead of hate. This is absurd. He wants me to hate my family. Well, you know what? In comparison with how you're to follow Jesus, yes. And if anyone gets in your way of following Jesus, you let that loyalty go and you are loyal only to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to follow me and you have a family member stopping you, it doesn't matter. You follow me if you're my disciple. Your loyalty lies not with them anymore. Your loyalty needs to lie with me. You will be loyal to me and me alone, not your brother, not your wife, not your husband, not your sister, not your brother, not even yourself. If you come to me to be my disciple, and any of those people try and stop you in any way, your loyalty is with me always. Or if they want you to do something that goes against what I want you to do, your loyalty lies with me, not them. That's a hard one. For us to swallow. And he says, if you can't handle that, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Don't follow me if you can't do that. Let's go to the next teaching. This is your loyalty must change from yourself to me. So let's go to the next verse and look and see what that says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be. My So what does this mean, bear your cross? It doesn't mean that you're just gonna have a hard time. Oh, I'm bearing my cross. That's not what this means at all. It does have this idea that you have to be willing to die for the one that you're following. It does have that idea, but that's not even the main idea. The main idea of bearing your cross and following him as he's telling this crowd, he's saying, crowd, what you need to do is you need to deny yourself. It's like you're dead to you. And you're alive to me. You're crucified. Your loyalty is no longer to you and what you want to do. Your loyalty, if you want to be my disciple, it stays with me. You're not even loyal to yourself anymore. How absurd does that sound? That flies in the face of our culture right now, doesn't it? I remember when God called us to the mission field, me and my wife, and uh, it was a hard hard call, but it's something that we felt the Lord leading us to do 100%. We would go and we would tell our friends and we would tell our family. We'd really kind of tell everybody, hey, here's what the Lord is doing in our life. We're about to leave everything and go to the mission field. We were there for eight years. And as we would tell some of our friends and some of our family what we were about to do, a lot of them thought it was pretty absurd. I had friends that didn't want me to go. And I was like, well, it's okay. My loyalty isn't with you. My loyalty is with Jesus who's calling me. I had family who thought, you know what? This isn't how families are supposed to, to work. You're not supposed to go far away for long, long, long periods of time. And I, I love you, but my loyalty isn't with you. My loyalty is with Jesus. And, and our time on the mission field was hard in a new culture with no friends. We left everything here, family, friends, home, everything. Learning a new language, trying to understand, trying to be understood, trying to teach the gospel to these people. It was just a hard, hard thing, and it cost us dearly. It cost us our loyalties, ultimately. The last thing about loyalties that we're going to see is your loyalty must change from everything to me. Let's go to that last verse, verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, Jesus tells this crowd, cannot be my disciple. You can't follow me. You can't be my disciple if you have loyalties that lie elsewhere. Not to family, not to yourself, not to anything, your land, your home, your job, anything. You leave it all for me. You are loyal to me and me alone. So how does all of this impact your life? Everything that Jesus said to that huge crowd so long ago, like 2,000 years ago, why are we even talking about this? Because following Jesus really hasn't changed at all. Following Jesus is really the same today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus turned to that crowd and had compassion on them. And even though he had compassion on them, said, Don't follow me if you can't handle the cost. Well, for you and me, there's still a difference between following Jesus and just going where followers of Jesus are. Just like that crowd. Just because you were in the crowd didn't make you a follower of Jesus, even though there were some followers of Jesus in the crowd, let me put this a little more bluntly. Just coming to First Baptist Church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus, even though there are followers of Jesus here, but that doesn't cut it. Not in our day and not in Jesus' day. Here's the next thing I want you to see that following Jesus is still going to cost you. I said that's the one thing I want you to remember today, following Jesus. Is going to cost you. Now, when I say cost you, yes, salvation is free. Yes, always. Grace is free. Forgiveness is free. Place your faith in Him, it's done. But when you begin to follow Jesus, there's a cost associated with it because following Jesus means a change in all of your loyalties. So, all our loyalties must change. Every one of our loyalties. They go from everything that they were at all to Jesus. We're only loyal to Him now because we're following Him. Which brings me to our last point. We still need to count the cost. I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor stand up in front of you and not just say, Hey, follow Jesus. I'm not going to say that today. I want you to follow Jesus. But here's what I'm saying before you follow Jesus, if you haven't, then you better sit down and you better count the cost. Because it's going to cost you so much. And for some, it costs more than others. Some of you have been in that situation where accepting Christ means saying goodbye to mother, or father, or both, or brother, or sister, or wife, or husband. This gets real when we're talking about our loyalties and following Jesus. So we still need to count the cost. It seems absurd to follow Jesus because of all of the absurd things that he did. But it's never absurd to follow Jesus because of the reward that we get. Eternal life in the end. And our loyalties actually where they should be. It's not like we're just giving them up because. It's because that's where they should be. Our loyalty should always be with God. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. So where are you today? Are your loyalties kind of messed up? Do you need to rearrange priorities in your life so you can follow Jesus the way he intends you to follow him? Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're you're thinking, man, all this Jesus talk is absurd. Yeah, it, it is if Jesus was just a normal, average human being. But he was God in the flesh. Maybe you need to put your faith in him for the first time today, even though it might seem a little absurd. Or maybe you need to carry this absurd message to your neighbors. And maybe you've already been sharing with somebody and you need to say, hey, you know what? Before you make that call, because I don't want you to start following and then just stop and people are going to mock you. Here's, here's what you should do. Just count the cost before you follow him. Here's what it's going to cost you if you want to follow Jesus. Maybe you're just looking for a church. I don't know how you need to respond to the Lord today. I know that a few pastors are going to be up here in a minute, and they are willing to talk with you about whatever you need to talk with, it, with you about, whatever you need to pray about. They will help you with that. But make sure that you respond to Jesus in some way, in light of where your loyalties should lie. Dear God, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who did some absurd things when he was on earth with us. God, I thank you that you have made a way for us to know you, to become your disciple. And you laid it out so plain for us. You didn't just say, follow me blindly. You said, sit down. Count the cost before you follow me because it can be big. God, I pray that this entire crowd would see that it's worth following you. That eternal life is possible because of you. Help us place our faith in you and help us come to a spot in our lives where we can count the cost and see that it's worth the fight. In Jesus' name we pray.